Welcome to our Didache Divine Service. Lesson two for tonight in Lutheran Catechesis is on page 46. We will begin with the invocation and prayer, and then I'll entertain any um, follow-up discussions you may have had in your thoughts from last week, or if you read over lesson one from last week afterwards, and if you have questions, I'll be happy to take those, all right? Let us begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Almighty God, whose compassion never fails, and who invites us to call upon you in prayer, hear the heartfelt confession of our sins, and receive our humble supplication for your mercy. Spare us from the just punishment of sin which our Lord Jesus Christ has borne for us and enable us to serve you in holiness and purity of life. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. And uh, you remember last week, our lesson one covered the first, second, and third commandments using the parable of the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man who fared sumptuously every day, dressed in purple and fine linen, and the beggar, whose name is Lazarus, a beggar totally dependent upon someone outside of himself, uh, has nothing, and he desires merely to eat the crumbs which fall from the rich man's table. They both die, but it is Lazarus that is carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, a picture of heaven, while the rich man finds himself in hell. The difference between the two was not that one was a sinner and the other was not, but the difference had to do with the heart. And what difference is that between the two? Faith, the faith of the heart. In whom or in what did the rich man trust? in himself, his works and accomplishments. And what did that turn him into? A generous man or a less than generous man? A sacrificial man or a selfish man? What did it turn him into? Selfish. A selfish man. Okay. Even from hell, he is trying to order the beggar Lazarus around and tell... Uh, Father Abraham, what should be done? Okay? And the faith of the beggar Lazarus is in the God of Abraham who had made a promise. The seed of the Abraham, the seed of Abraham, which is a reference to Christ who would bring the blessing of salvation to all the nations. Okay? And we talked about the Ten Commandments, the first three commandments. You shall have no other gods, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. And I wanted you to think of those three commandments as if God is speaking to you in positive terms. So in the first commandment, when he says you shall have no other gods, what is he actually inviting you to? What is he saying to you? Trust me. Trust me. I made you. I created you. Trust me. I will take care of you. I will save you. I will redeem you. Trust me. Okay. 
In the second commandment, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. The small catechism says we should fear and love God so that we do not use satanic arts, lie or deceive by his name, but call upon it in every trouble. Pray, praise, and give thanks. What is God saying to us? He who says, trust me, what is he saying to us in the second commandment? Pray. Pray to me. And the voice of faith that trusts in him is what prayer is. It claims the promises of God. Okay? We had that little bit with Rebecca and her father. You know, do you trust your dad? So what do you do? You go to him for help. Okay? And in the third commandment, remember the Sabbath day. Sabbath means what? Rest. And the rest that comes through what? Through the word of God, through preaching of God's word, through teaching. So the catechism says we should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word, but hold it sacred. Gladly hear and learn it. Okay? So under the third commandment, the God who says, trust me, pray to me, what is he saying under the third commandment? Kevin, listen or hear me. Okay? By golly, I even got that on your sheet under the first table of the law about midway down the page. So it's all there for you. Um, any other questions? That was a little bit of a review, a little bit of priming the pump, so to speak. Any questions at all from last week that you thought about afterwards or thought about at the time but were too afraid to ask? So here, Melissa, this is where you can ask me. You don't have to be afraid to ask. Okay? Anything at all? Yes. Have I ever heard that Lazarus has a name and the rich man doesn't because Lazarus' name is written in the book of life? Um, I don't remember if I've ever heard anyone say that or not. Well, I think that the name Lazarus is there in the account that Jesus tells because the name Lazarus means God is my help. That would be the first thing. It's generally regarded as a parable, not, um, not a not a story that actually happened, but a parable and illustration, okay? Um, however, some have posited, including a good friend of mine, that the Lazarus there is actually the Lazarus, the brother of uh, Mary and Martha, but um, I shall not go that far, okay? Any other questions? All right, turn to Matthew chapter five. Matthew chapter 5, this is in the Sermon on the Mount, beginning at verse 17. It's always, you know, good to observe the context of what you're reading, especially when you jump in in the middle of the book. If you start at the beginning of the book and you're reading it without stopping, you can more easily see the context, or to whom is Jesus speaking. So in verse 17, when he says, do not think I came to destroy the law and the prophets, you know, to whom is he speaking? You go back to chapter 5, verse 1. Seeing the multitudes, he, Jesus, went up on the mountain, and when he was seated, his disciples came to him. 
Then he opened his mouth and taught them, saying. So these are disciples of Jesus. These are believers in Jesus. Okay? Um, and in Matthew's gospel, when I speak about disciples, it's mainly here talking about the 12. Okay? There weren't, they weren't the only ones following Jesus during his earthly ministry, but uh, especially here in Matthew, it is the focus is on the 12. So he says in verse 17, Do not think I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. All right, Caleb, this is where it's the same answer from last week. What is he referring to by the law and the prophets? The Old Testament scriptures. The law being the Pentateuch. The five books of Moses, the Torah, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and the prophets being the rest. So that's a phrase you find in the Gospels repeatedly, and that's what it's referring to. Uh, why, does it, why does it not refer to the New Testament scriptures in the Gospels? Because the New Testament wasn't written yet. That's right. So when Jesus is saying, do not think I came to destroy the law and the prophets, the only scriptures that are written are the Old Testament. Okay? The New Testament is not written until after Jesus' resurrection. Okay? All right. So why do you think he would say this? Or to put it another way, who might have been accusing Jesus of breaking the scriptures? of breaking the law of Moses, of violating the prophets. Who might have been saying this and making this accusation that the disciples would have heard? Beth. The Pharisees, the Pharisees and the scribes who disdained Jesus, particularly for what? I mentioned this yesterday in the sermon. For forgiving sin, for his mercy. Okay, they objected to the way in which he forgave people, not on the basis of their merits or their obedience to the law, but on the basis of God's love. Okay. So he says, do not think I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Verse 18, for assuredly I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. Now, a jot and a tittle in English refer here to the very tiniest of strokes of a Hebrew letter in the Hebrew alphabet. The tiniest of strokes. So, do you see the point that he's making? the entirety of the law and the prophets will be fulfilled. Not one jot or tittle will by any means pass away till the entirety of the law is fulfilled. Okay? Does the law of Moses that includes those, those five books, does it include the Ten Commandments? Yeah, that's, it's recorded in Deuteronomy 5 and Exodus 20. Then he says in verse 19, Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments and teaches men so shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. The idea of least here has no 
standing. So if you break one of the least of God's commandments, you have no standing in the kingdom of God. And if you have no standing, does a person have the right to claim anything from God on the basis of obedience to the law? No, because you have no standing. Okay? Elsewhere in the New Testament, the Apostle James will say, whoever shall keep the whole law and yet offend in one point, he is guilty of all because they all hang together. Amy said last week that first commandment is the basis for all of the commandments. If you could keep the first, you could keep them all. And that's shown in the explanations in the small catechism with that phrase, we should fear and love God, that's repeated over and over again. So you have no standing if you break even the slightest of the commandments. You have no standing before God in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever, this is the middle of 19, whoever does and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Literally, whoever does and teaches, he shall be called great in the kingdom. Who is he who does the law and who teaches the law, not only by words, but by the things that he does? Jesus. So he is the greatest in the kingdom. See how that connects to verse 17. Don't think I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I, didn't come, I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. And he who does the law and he who teaches the law is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. So everyone else has no standing except the one who does and teaches the law. So he's actually talking about himself. Again, do not think, I did not come to destroy the law and the prophets, but to fulfill. For I say to you, verse 20, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, and those are the ones Beth said correctly were the ones accusing Jesus of breaking the law, violating the law and the prophets because of his mercy and the way he was forgiving sin. But they were held up to be the most righteous people on earth at Jesus' time. But he says, unless your righteousness exceeds or is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. So you have to have a greater righteousness than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, even though they were thought to be the most righteous people on earth. Now let me ask you a few questions about Pharisees, the scribes, maybe even the rich man from last week. What motivated the rich man last week to do whatever it was that he did to amass his wealth? What motivated him to do that? I want to help Bob Garrick. I'm going to make this money so I can help Bob. What motivated him? What's that? Works. Well, why, why did he make all this money? Why was he wealthy? Why did he do all this stuff? What was his motivation, Kevin? Uh, for himself. For himself. 
Yeah, for himself. Okay? The scribes and the Pharisees, who despised Jesus because of his mercy, they despised those who were recipients of his mercy because they didn't, the scribes and Pharisees, did not believe those people who received Jesus' mercy, what? Deserved it. You don't deserve it. You're a sinner. You've done nothing to deserve this. So you see, for them, they did what they did in order to get a return. And if you haven't done what we've done, you don't deserve the return, but I do. Do you follow that? So their doing of whatever it was that they were doing, they were doing for their own benefit. Okay? Are you with me? So even when they did good, or when it looked like they were doing good, they were doing good for their own benefit. Is that love? I'll do this, Brian, as long as it's going to benefit me, but if not, what's the point? Love for themselves. Love for themselves. Now, God's law talks a lot about love. Love for God and love for the neighbor but not love for the self. We'll see this especially next week in the reading with the rich young man who comes to Jesus and says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So I want to talk about the concept of righteousness. What is righteousness? When you hear that word, what do you think of? What do you think of? How would you define it? Someone ask you, you know, Kent, what is righteousness? What would you say? What makes us right before God? What makes us right before God is acceptable to God. Marty, what? Holiness. holiness, that righteousness is holiness. Okay? I'm looking for definitions of holiness right now. I'm not saying those are bad. I'm just looking. Anybody else? Amy. Keeping the whole law. If you keep the law, you're righteous. You don't keep the law, you're unrighteous. Or you keep the law, you're holy, Kent. You don't keep the law, you're unholy. Any other definitions? Kevin, you have a... I like your mother's definition. You keep the law, you know... You do what you're told. You boys do what you're told. You're righteous. Holy boys, honoring your father and your mother. You don't do what you're told. You're naughty boys. I mean, that's a pretty... So, so would you say, would you say uh, righteousness is not being naughty? Okay. So, Marty, your concept of being holy keeping the law, doing what you're supposed to do. I think a lot of people think of righteousness in those terms. And in terms of keeping the law, you know, in society, this is a righteous person. He doesn't violate the law. He's a good person. This person is wicked. Does, do, do, do wicked and righteous ever get put together? This wicked person is righteous. Do, would you, we ever say that? 
in society? Amy, would we? Okay, well, and, and not unless you're a looney tune, huh? then you might do it, okay? So a wicked person is not thought to be righteous. What, what is a wicked person thought? How would you describe a wicked person? Caleb, how would you describe a wicked person? Someone who doesn't keep the law. Have you ever broken the law? Any of the Ten Commandments? You wicked person. I mean, if, if wickedness is breaking the law, then you're a wicked person if you've broken the law. How would you describe a sinner? Someone who breaks the law. Do you break the law, Becca? You're a sinner. See, Melissa, I'm, I'm not picking on you. She, she said, please don't pick on me. <laughs> now I've let the cat out of the bag and I am picking on her. So if I pick on her, maybe, is that, what does a wicked person do? Does a wicked person pick on someone? Yeah. So I guess I'm a wicked person also. A sinner is one who breaks the law. A righteous person is one who doesn't break the law. Hmm. Who does a wicked person love most, himself or somebody else? Himself. Now, he may love someone else, but he loves someone else for his own benefit. Okay? Be careful of boys like that, Rebecca, that love you for their own benefit. Isn't that true, Amy? Got to watch out for those kind of boys. You didn't raise those kind of boys, did you? Okay. All right. So you see, okay, the concept of righteousness. Now, Jesus says, unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. So, does that mean that we're supposed to measure the level of obedience to the Ten Commandments, to God's law? So Rachel is a little bit holier, Marty, than her husband, Kevin. Would you agree with that? No. Oh, yeah, see? <laughs> is, that, is that what we're supposed to do? And then when we do that, what are we spending our time doing? Comparing ourselves to one another. Most of you are... To your dad and mother would know this, you know, my dog's better than your dog. My dog's better than yours. My dog's better because he eats kennel ration. You remember that commercial? Yeah, so we do the same thing with, I'm better than you because I keep the law. And this is why the Pharisees hated Jesus. Because he didn't recognize their righteousness at all. Because for them, righteousness was, you know, in a matter of degrees, how well have I been obedient? Okay? But when you're, when you're talking about righteousness that way, even if you talk about righteousness is, or unrighteousness, wickedness is breaking the law, and righteousness is keeping the law, and according to a degree, then you're constantly trying to keep the law, but for your own benefit, not for the law's sake, not for goodness' sake, not for love's sake, Right? Even there, the doing of the law is self-righteous. Does anybody know a parable that Jesus told where someone is comparing himself to another sinner and puffing up his chest with pride? 
Do you know the parable? Beth? The Pharisee and the tax collector. The Pharisee comes in and says, I thank God I'm not like other sinners, like Kevin here. I fast. I do this. I do that. See, the focus of the faith. Even in the doing of good, the focus of the faith is on him. Okay? And the, and the tax collector is ashamed and beats his breast and says, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus says, that man went home. Do you know what the next word is in the text? Justified. Do you know what justified means? Not made righteous. That's often what, how it is defined. Made follows what it means. Declared righteous. Okay? Made righteous apply, uh, makes it sound like a process. Okay? But declared righteous is what justification is. To be justified is to be declared righteous. Okay? Out of it comes... You know, like we said last week, the gospel gives what the law demands, so a person becomes more gracious and loving the more they receive the gospel. But the gospel declares one righteous. Okay. Now, I have on your sheet here what is righteousness, and I've got two bullets. There is the righteousness of the law, and that's what we've been talking about, the righteousness of the law is man's attempts to atone for sin and earn salvation by the works of the law. But in so doing, he loves himself above all else. Even when he does the law. So did you ever give flowers to Christine, Kent? Was it ever, was it ever purely motivated? without any slightest thought for anything in return? Was it ever purely motivated? Maybe almost. Yeah, almost purely, yeah. Is that righteous? No. Okay, so this is the righteousness of the law. Our problem, yours and mine and the whole world, is not that we do sinful things or say sinful things. Our problem is deeper than that. Our problem is that we, can you finish the sentence? Are sinners. You follow this? Our problem is not merely that we do sinful things. It is that we are sinful. So even Kent's loving gesture of flowers for Christine is not pure. My sacrifices of my time to have all of these classes for people is not pure. How about that? The problem is not that we do sinful things, which we do, but that we are sinful. And at the heart of being sinful is a love for self and a mistrust for God. And that's why the Pharisees, 
That's why the Pharisees hated Jesus so, because he gave absolutely no credence to their righteousness. Because in truth, it was no righteousness at all. You follow? There's the righteousness of the law before God. Now, in contrast to that, the righteousness of God is Jesus fulfilling the law for us. Now, this is yours to take home. I would probably circle, underline, star, whatever, two words, for us. Because what he does, unlike Kent and his impure motivations, Jesus' motivations are absolutely pure. He does what he does out of love for God the Father and out of love for us. He is pure in his motivations. So the righteousness of God is Jesus fulfilling the law for us in his death for us upon the cross. He loves God and his neighbor ahead of himself. Notice in the parentheses there, we are describing how you can summarize the Ten Commandments. Have you heard of the two tables of the law, first and second table? The first table we talked about last week, our relationship to God. Who among us at all times, down to the very heart of our being, fears, loves, and trusts in God above all things at all times? Okay? The first table of the law is summarized, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And the second commandment is like it. We had it two Sundays ago. Love your neighbor as yourself. It's literally the idea, love your neighbor in place of yourself. And I say it that way because this is exactly what Jesus did. Out of his love for the Father, he loved us in place of himself. And he did what he did in his death upon the cross, not for his benefit, but for our benefit and out of love for the Father. There's righteousness. That God the Father offered up his Son into death for us. That Jesus, in love for the Father and us, willingly died for our sins. That's the righteousness of God. So I've got these three points underneath that. He loved his Father with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength by willingly going to the cross on our behalf. He loved us in place of himself by willingly suffering and dying in our place. And back to verse 17, do not think I came to destroy the law and the prophets. I have not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus fulfilled all of Scripture for us in his love for God and his love for the neighbor. So this is the righteousness of God. Now, we're going to come back to this Sermon on the Mount and highlight a couple of things. But what I'd like you to do is turn to the book of Romans, chapter 3. Now, you're in Matthew, so you go Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans. Romans is a pretty big book. It's got 16 chapters, and it follows the Gospels and Acts. So Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Acts, Romans, chapter 3. And St. Paul, in Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 10, is quoting from the Old Testament, Psalm 14. And he says, There is none righteous, no, not one. 
How about that? And that's why I've talked to you, you know, what is righteousness? And righteousness, according to the standard of the law, there is none righteous. Not me, not you, not the criminal on the street. There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. You think about the rich man last week. He didn't seek after God, except the God of himself. They have all gone out of the way. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. Their tongues, they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Think about the commandment explanation. We should fear, love, and trust in God above all things. At the heart of all sin is mistrust, unbelief, the love of self. There is none righteous, no, not one. Now, verse 19. We know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Do you understand that expression? The law is preached to those who are under the law to shut people up. You understand the expression that every mouth might be stopped from doing what? Justifying themselves, Kent. Good, very good. Yep. Uh, but I didn't, it, it wasn't my fault. If you lived with the woman I lived, you wouldn't. See? <laughs> Brian smiles and Melissa looks over at <laughs> Okay, so self-justifying. But the law, when it is heard rightly, there's no excuse. And if you remember, some of you, the story of King David in the Old Testament. He had fallen into grievous sin. The prophet Nathan comes to him and calls him to repentance, to see his sin honestly, without rationalization, self-justification in the slightest. And he says, I have sinned. I deserve to be punished. There's the function of the law, which we'll summarize in a moment. But to bring a person to a knowledge of their sin without excuse, without justifying themselves, without rationalizing, I have sinned. God be merciful to me. So back to the Romans passage here. Verse 20, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in his sight. Again, Amy, to be justified is to be declared righteous. No flesh, because all have sinned, okay, can be justified by the law. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. Unless you're, unless you're not looking at the law honestly, no one escapes the scrutiny of the law. And every time you try to justify yourself even by the law, you show yourself a lawbreaker because of the love for self. Okay? Again, our biggest problem is not that we do sinful things or say sinful things. It is the state of being sinner. All right. 
This is bad news up to this point. But it's necessary because unless we come to know and believe and understand that by the works of the law, I cannot be righteous, I cannot be justified. Then going back to Jesus, what is this righteousness that's greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Whose is this? What would you say? Christ's, yeah. Who fulfills the law and the prophets. Okay? Whoever does and teaches them is the greatest in the kingdom. So look at now, verse 21 of Romans. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law or our works of the law, is revealed being witnessed by the law and the prophets. There it is, Caleb, the reference is witnessed in the Old Testament scriptures, the righteousness of God. Even the righteousness of God, which is through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there's no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified, declared righteous, freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And the redemption refers to his suffering and death upon the cross for us, the shedding of his blood for us, whom God set forth to be a propitiation, or literally mercy seat. The location of God's mercy is in his Son, by his blood, through faith in him, to demonstrate his righteousness, because in his forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness, that he might be just, or that he might be righteous, and the justifier, the one who declares righteous, the one who has faith in Jesus. So Amy, if God declares you as a sinner righteous, what are you? Righteous. You are justified by what? By faith in Jesus. Or you could say it another way too. You are justified by the blood of Christ through faith in Jesus. Okay? That faith receives that righteousness of Christ. Faith receives that justification. So unless your righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Whose righteousness is greater than the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees? Christ's. And how do we receive this righteousness? By faith. Okay? A faith that God himself works in us by the gospel and the spirit. Okay? So... Even though we're talking about the law, the law is leading us to Christ because by the deeds of the law, by the works of the law, no flesh can be justified in God's sight. For by the law comes the knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed. Being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of Christ, whom God the Father set forth as a place of mercy, a propitiation, through his blood, to justify those who have faith in Jesus, to declare us righteous. So that's good news, because we are saved from our sin 
by the forgiveness of sins, by the justifying work of God in Christ. We could not rescue ourselves, but God in his love rescued us. And Jesus fulfilled the law, not by looking out for himself, but by laying down his life in death for us. So if you come back, we'll come back to the Matthew 5, and then if you just come to your sheet also, this is what, you know, you could say, how did you come up with this definition of the righteousness of God? It's in the Bible. You know, there's the righteousness of the law. By the works of the law, no flesh will be justified. We talked about that. It's not a matter of degrees. Even when we do this comparative stuff, the, the mere act of comparison, you know, I'm better than you. No, I'm better than you. What the stench of self-centered self-righteousness that, that smells of, okay? There's no humility of contrition and repentant faith there whatsoever. The law, when rightly heard, should teach us to despair of ourselves that we might cling to Christ. And so this leads to the function of God's law. I've got four little bullets there. The law describes what is good, that's to, be, that's to be sure, and what it is to love God and the neighbor. It describes that. If you look at those beautiful explanations in the small catechism, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things, call upon him in every trouble, pray, praise, and give thanks, uh, hold God's word sacred, gladly hear and learn it, honor one's father and mother uh, and Rejoice over everything that they give at all times, Kevin. Your father and mother, they're the greatest people on earth. Okay? Help and support your neighbor in every physical need, fifth commandment. Lead a, a chaste, a sexually pure and decent life, sixth commandment. Help and support your neighbor in all of his um, bodily needs and then in the temporal possessions and so forth. I mean, it describes a, a, anybody who would do that is a great person. Of course, that's what Jesus has done. Second bullet, because man is sinful, the law always accuses him of sin, exposing it and bringing it to light. Third bullet, the law calls us to repentance and how much we need a Savior. And the fourth bullet, Jesus embodies the fulfillment of the law in his love. And the, the crowning expression of that love is his suffering and death. Now, um, the second bullet says, because of man is sinful, the law always accuses him. I'd like you to go back to the Matthew passage. One of the ways that the Pharisees justified themselves is they would take a commandment of God and say, I've not broken that. Like, you shall not murder. Huh. I never killed anybody. Has anybody in here ever physically killed someone? Can you raise your hand right now? Okay. There's a joke, but I don't have time to tell you about priests at a party. But anyway, I can tell you afterwards if you have the time interested. So they could say they've never, they, they've never committed murder. Or they could say... We never committed the physical act of adultery. Shall I ask you to raise your hand if you've ever committed the physical act of adultery? The Pharisees would say, nope, 
Never done it. Even if they'd been married several times, they could say, well, I was married, but then I got the certificate of divorce according to the law, and I was freed from that woman so I could go on to this woman, and then after I was with her a while, I wrote her a certificate of divorce according to the law, and then I moved on to this woman. And that's what they did. And they could justify themselves for having kept the law. That's why I said before, the law is not... It, the problem is not simply that we do sinful things or say sinful things, it's that we are sinful, and that very practice of self-justifying activity uh, shows that forth. So look at what Jesus does after talking about the righteousness that is greater than the scribes and Pharisees, which is his own, where he fulfills the law and the prophets. Verse 21, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. What commandment? Fifth commandment, and whoever murders will be in danger of the judgment. But I say to you, whoever is angry with his brother shall be in danger of the judgment. And whoever says to his brother, Raka, which means empty head, like dumb head, shall be in danger of the council. Whoever says, you fool, shall be in danger of hellfire. Well, if anger and bitterness and hatred and contempt for someone is murder, who among us is not a murderer? Skipping down to verse 27. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not commit adultery. What commandment? Sixth, verse 28, but I say to you, Whoever looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. Well, if lust of the heart is adultery, who among us is without sin? And the seriousness of sin he speaks of in 29 and 30 about plucking the eye out if it causes you to sin and so forth. Skipping ahead to verse 33. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. What commandment or commandments? You shall not swear falsely. Eighth commandment and also second commandment. But I say to you, do not swear either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool. Verse 37, but let your yes be yes, and your no, no. Whatever is more than these is from the evil one. Okay? So here again, notice how he takes the accusation of the law against the sinner to a deeper level. Not merely outward activity, but to the very heart of a person out of which the sinful activity flows. Now look at what he's describing here. You have heard that it was said an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. Whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you, and from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. 
You have heard it said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, bless those who curse you, do good to those who hate you, pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Who does that? Christ does. That's right. And so that becomes a description of his love, which can we do share in by faith in him. And the reception of his forgiveness, of his righteousness, begins in this life, though never complete, to transform us into the likeness of our Savior as we pray for our enemies and endure persecution and suffering and so forth. Notice verse 45, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. It is the sonship of Christ which we're clothed with, Amy, when we are justified, declared righteous. We're all sons of God, men and women, okay? We are all sons of God because the sonship is the sonship of Christ. The righteousness is the righteousness of Christ. So when he says at the end, therefore, verse 48, be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. That is like an absolution. Be justified. Be holy. Be perfect. It's not telling someone to do, but declaring something that is to be received. Okay? So here again, the Romans passage, the righteousness of God received by faith in Christ who suffered and died for us. Okay. I'm going to pause here before taking you on a whirlwind review of the second table of the law. But do you have any questions or anything that's not clear in the discussion? Beth. Yes, unless your righteousness in verse 20 exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees. It's a comparison of the righteousness of the law and the righteousness of God in Christ. Yes. And, and so when it says, unless your righteousness, this is the wonderful gift. Christ's righteousness becomes your righteousness okay. through faith in him. Okay? Yeah. Christ's righteousness becomes your Righteousness. So when you are justified, that's why I went with Amy before, if Christ declares you righteous, then you are righteous. It's not a matter of being made righteous, like you're not quite there yet. You are declared righteous. Okay? So that is a state of being. Okay? Unless your righteousness is the righteousness of Christ, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So the great gift of God to us as Christians, this is why we believe in him. It's why the cross is at the center of our worship. Because at the highest form of worship is the desire to receive Christ and his righteousness. Okay? To receive his forgiveness. Okay? Jesus, thy blood and righteousness, my beauty, thy beauty is my glorious dress. Okay. Okay. Salvation unto us has come by God's free grace and favor. Okay. Since Christ has full atonement made and brought to us salvation, each Christian therefore may be glad and build on this foundation. By grace alone do we plead for. Okay. 
That's from a couple of different hymns. Salvation unto us is common. Dear Christians, one and all rejoice. Okay, good. Excellent. Any other? So asking questions for clarification is good. What we're, part of what we're talking about here is the distinction between law and gospel. By the works of the law, there's none righteous. But by the word of the gospel, you are declared righteous through faith in Jesus, who is your righteousness, because he died for you, for us. Okay. Other questions? Amy? So in the Old Testament, yes? Okay, which James also quotes, the fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Absolutely. Absolutely. No Old Testament patriarch, prophet, believer was heard by God apart from the righteousness of Christ. Abraham believed in the Lord and he was declared accounted righteous. Okay? So faith, the Christian faith is never in who? ourselves. Never. The Christian faith is always in Christ. Always. Now, our old Adam fights against that. Okay? The old Adam always believes in himself. Always. But Christian faith always and only clings to Christ. There was another Beth. The scribes were the theologians, and they were scribes. They copied, they the, the, copied the scriptures. But when you say just the copiers, if you wrote word for word every, uh, every word, chapter, and verse of the prophet Isaiah, you'd get pretty familiar with it, right? You'd also get used to making the jots and the tittles, you know, the smallest stroke, Okay. Herod, when he wanted to find out where the Messiah was to be born, when he was visited by the wise men, consulted the scribes. Okay? And there's an example of a person who knows that it's true, namely the scriptures, but doesn't trust in the message of the scriptures. Herod knew that the scriptures were true. That's why he went to the scribes to find out the truth of where Messiah was to be born. Not to worship him, as he told the wise men, but to try to murder him. What an irony. He knew enough to know that the scriptures were the truth and that the scribes would know the answer so that he could find out the answer and try to kill God which is what everybody is trying to do who hated Jesus. They're trying to kill God. And what everybody in the world is doing today that hates what Christians believe in, they're trying to kill God. More about that in the Sunday Bible classes over the next months. Any other question? Kent. That's correct. I mean, the... Because the means of grace, which would be preaching, baptism, absolution, the Lord's Supper, um, 
those means are instruments or means of God's love, his grace, or means or instruments of the Holy Spirit, whereby the righteousness of Christ is given to you. Okay? So when you come to baptism, you are clothed with the righteousness of Christ. When you come to confession, the pastor absolves you. He declares you righteous for Jesus' sake. I forgive you all your sin. There's no fragmentary or partialness to that, Amy. It's full. Okay? When you come to the Lord's Supper, you are eating and drinking of the righteousness of God, your salvation, procured by Jesus' body and blood offered up into death. There is the righteousness of God. Okay? Rachel. The first part is good. The second part is so, I've failed myself more times than I can count. But why is that the mentality? Why is that the mentality? So she's um, Baptist. Is that? Um, well, and it would come out of that theology, of, of Baptist theology, um, where uh, faith becomes um, a product of one's own will, and so you're working together with God. You know, you're choosing to trust, you're choosing to believe, and so you can, you know, and that then you can boast about your decision for Christ yeah. when faith is of your own doing. That's why I said the Christian faith never trusts itself. And, and, and you see this, I mean, was there no faith in Simon Peter when he said, even if everyone is made to deny you, I will never deny you? Was there no faith in him? Well, he had faith in Jesus, but what was he expressing there? That his believing, as if it was his, was greater than his fellow disciples, who they may deny, but I won't. That's quicksand. Okay. Good. Other questions? Okay. Right? You sure? So the main burden of today was to talk to you about the righteousness of Christ. We're talking about the Ten Commandments. But the Ten Commandments, God's law, are not going to make you righteous. They're going to expose your sin. Christ is your righteousness. Because he has kept the law and done for you what you could not do for yourself. He's the only one who can be trusted. Now, it doesn't mean we don't think the law is good. The law is good. That's one of the bullet points there. But the law is always accusing us because of the problem of our sinfulness. Let's take a look at uh, the Ten Commandments. Turn to page 49 in Lutheran Catechesis or the 
catechism, whichever is handier for you. We've already reviewed the first three commandments with the words, trust me, pray to me, hear me. Now the second table of the law, which is love for the neighbor, let me ask you the question and then you can respond. What is the fourth commandment? Honor your father and your mother. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. All right, now, hear the catechism's teaching, meditation on the commandments follows a constant pattern throughout. First commandment foundation, we should fear and love God. Then there'll be a negative, what according to the Ten Commandments we are not to do. And then a positive, what we are to do. So here, we should fear and love God, there's the first commandment, what we're not to do. So that we do not despise or anger our parents and other authorities. Now that is... Um, a long-standing in, in Christian society and culture, but across cultures, it's understood that father and mother are the building blocks of civilized society. They're the basis for government. Uh, even when the uh, founders of our republic talked about um, uh, the laws of, of God and nature's God and talked about the consent of the governed, you know, envisioned there was the fundamental authority of father and mother so that the government rests upon that authority so that a household was like a mini government, okay? And even as, even as um, in the ancient world, the king was benevolent, you know, your father is benevolent. They would call the, the, the kings the father of the nation. And they'd pray to him for mercy and all that he could help protect them and provide for them so that they could make a living. Well, that built was built upon the fundamental building block of father and mother. Okay? You can't have, this is a newsflash, but in our world today, you have to say it. You can't have a family without a father and without a mother. Even if you have a sex change operation, it ain't no sex change operation because there is no female turned into a male that has the ability to impregnate another female. It doesn't happen. Nor is there a man turned into a female who has the ability to receive uh, the impregnation and, and, and become uh, a mother. It's, it's fantasy, wicked, evil fantasy. So in God's design, father and mother is a biological man and a biological woman and there ain't no other way to identify them, Kent. Contrary to the place of employment that you uh, work at, there ain't no other way to identify them. But this becomes the building blocks of society and God's ordering of creation. That's why I said, remember at the beginning, any attack on what Christians believe and what the scriptures teach is an attack on God and an attempt to kill God. Okay? But the positive here, honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. That is the positive uh, side of it. 
Now, under the uh, second table of the law, I have listed there the second table of the law, God protects his good gifts. So next to the fourth commandment, what gift? Family and God's authority in this world. Okay? So we live in a society and culture in which uh, Rebecca here is trying to have, the government is trying to take her authority away from her as a mother over her children. Is that not true? Mm -hmm. And um, no government or employer can usurp in God's economy uh, your office and calling to care for your children. That is a sacrosanct thing for us as Christians. Okay, so there's the fourth commandment. Again, this is a, a survey here. And now the fifth commandment, if you turn over to page 51. What is the fifth commandment? You shall not murder. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. So here, what gift does God wish to protect with the fifth commandment? Life, that's right. The sanctity of life made in the image of the triune God. And we will talk about the image of God in great detail when we get to the first article of the creed and creation. We're made in the image and likeness of the one God who is three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So the fifth commandment is intended to uh, protect God's gift of life. And let's just keep it at this page, but jump very briefly. What's the sixth commandment? You shall not commit adultery. So there God wishes to protect his gift of what? Marriage and of being male or female. Now, I, I put it that way, not, not this way. God wishes to protect his gift of marriage and sexuality. And more and more, I want to take away that word from my vocabulary because of how it is now used as this slippery word. Okay? He wants to protect what it is to be male and female. That's biblical language. Okay? But notice how fourth, fifth, and sixth commandments go together so tightly. Father and mother, marriage, uh, uh, father and mother, life, and marriage. They all go together under the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth commandments. Okay? Um, secondly, while Jesus had his agenda in talking to the disciples over against the Pharisees who wanted to say, I've kept the law because I've, um, I've never committed murder. And he wanted to show that it goes down to hatred and bitterness. What the catechism's agenda is here is to hold up the way we're created, the physicality of our created being, body body, as well as soul. So we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. Okay? 
So I will argue in the St. Peter option, for example, that messing around unethically with biological material, including viruses, manipulating of those things. Part of the reason why there's a pandemic is because of the unethical and immoral manipulation of viruses in laboratories. And now, the society who condones all of that thing in the name of health is now in the name of health forcing all manner of things to be done or not to be done. Okay. But I'm anticipating a little bit too much from the St. Peter option where we're going to spend a whole session on these sorts of things. But the fifth commandment, our bodies are sacred and holy. Okay? That life is more than simply a disembodied spirit or soul, but we are body and soul. And the catechism emphasizes that. Okay? Um, if you'll turn to the sixth commandment, which is on page 53. Again, I'll ask you, what is the sixth commandment? You shall not commit adultery. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we lead a sexually pure and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. And I already drew your attention to God desiring to protect marriage and the gifts of being male or female. The translation back in 1986 uses the word sexually pure there. I do, if this is your copy, you can circle that and put in the margin chaste because chastity uh, is a holy word that describes more than sexual purity. It, 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 it describes uh, one's thoughts and words as well as actions that are holy and respectful of in the case of a man toward a woman, or uh, in the case of a woman toward a man. And of course, um, any kind of erotic activity between the same sex has just simply has no validity whatsoever. There is something about the Sixth Commandment explanation, however, that is a little different than the other ones. We should fear and love God so that we lead a chaste and decent life in what we say and do, and husband and wife love and honor each other. Notice what it does not include, the strong negative of the others. And part of the reason for that is because at the time of the Reformation, when monastic life and so forth was held up as being the holy life compared to marriage and family as profane, uh, Luther wanted to hold up marriage as a blessed estate, okay, uh, to be uh, enjoyed and to be celebrated. So uh, as opposed, and without any negativity associated with it. So we lead a sexually pure or a chaste and a decent life in what we say and do. And husband and wife love and honor each other. The seventh commandment, Page 55. What is the seventh commandment? You shall not steal. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not take our neighbor's money or possessions 
or get them in any dishonest way, but help him to improve and protect his possessions and income. So there we have the negative. Do not take our neighbor's money or possessions or get them in any dishonest way, all of which would be selfish and self-centered, but help him to improve and protect his possessions and income. Notice how all of the positive ones looking out for, looking out for in love the welfare of the other. What does God wish to protect here? Property, material goods, money, and possessions. And notice how the explanation sees these gifts that you've been given by God to be used in service to another. And that's characteristic of all of these positive things. God has given me my life that I might serve the life of my neighbor. Okay? God has given me my material possessions that I might serve the life and welfare of my neighbor in, with those possessions. Okay, and then finally, since our time is running out, the Eighth Commandment. What is the, this is on page 57. What is the Eighth Commandment? You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not tell lies about our neighbor, betray him, slander him, or hurt his reputation but defend him, speak well of him, and explain everything in the kindest way. So to explain everything in the kindest way, or the old language, to put the best construction on everything, is the way of love. Every one of these positive descriptions in the explanations describe what it is to love. And if you go down all of them from honor your father and your mother, Jesus did that, submitting himself to Mary and Joseph, helping and supporting in physical need. He did that by offering up his own life. Okay? He led a chaste life that sanctified and made his bride, the church, holy. Okay? He used his material possessions, emptying himself entirely for our benefit. And from the cross, talk about putting the best construction on everything. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So when we talk about Jesus' righteousness, ultimately it's the cross, but we see how in every way he fulfilled the whole will and law of God for us. Now, I went ahead and listed the ninth and the tenth commandments there about coveting, and we will talk about those next week. But what does he want to protect with those gifts? The trust of the heart, the heart's affections, the heart's loyalties, and the heart's desires. Okay. Let us prepare for the Lord's Supper. And we use the salmon sheet. You, you may not all fit at one table so we can... Take two tables. So.
Beloved in the Lord, let us draw near with a true heart and confess our sins unto God our Father, beseeching him in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ to grant us forgiveness. Our help is in the name of the Lord. I said I will confess my transgressions unto the Lord. O Almighty God, merciful Father, I, a poor, miserable sinner, confess unto you all my sins and iniquities with which I have ever offended you and justly deserve your temporal and eternal punishment. But I am heartily sorry for them and sincerely repent of them. And I pray you of your boundless mercy and for the sake of the holy, innocent, bitter sufferings and death of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, to be gracious and merciful to me, a poor, sinful being. Upon this, your confession, I, by virtue of my office as a called and ordained servant of the word, announce the grace of God unto all of you, and in the stead and by the command of my Lord Jesus Christ, I forgive you all your sins. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, you invite all who are burdened with sin to come to you for rest. We now come at your invitation to the heavenly feast, which you have provided for your children on earth. Preserve us from impenitence and unbelief. Cleanse us from our unrighteousness and clothe us with the righteousness purchased with your blood. Strengthen our faith, increase our love and hope, and assure us a place at your heavenly table where we will eat eternal manna and drink of the river of your pleasure forever and ever. Into your hands we commend all the members of our congregation suffering illnesses and afflictions of the body. Bring healing according to your will and grant them your peace. For you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, Holy, Holy. Lord God, who Sabbath, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. 
Blessed are you, O Lord, our God, King of all creation. For you have had mercy on us and given your only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. In your righteous judgment you condemn the sin of Adam and Eve, who ate the forbidden fruit, and you justly barred them and all their children from the tree of life. Yet in your great mercy you promised salvation by a second Adam, your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, and made his cross a life-giving tree for all who trust in him. We give you thanks for the redemption you have prepared for us through Jesus Christ. Grant us your Holy Spirit that we may faithfully eat and drink of the fruits of his cross and receive the blessings of forgiveness, life, and salvation that come to us in his body and blood. Hear us as we pray in his name and as he has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is given for you. This do in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, have mercy upon us. O Christ, thou Lamb of God, that takest away the sin of the world, grant us thy peace. Amen. body of Christ given for you, the 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 body of Christ given for you, 
the body of Christ given for you. 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 blood of Christ shed for you. The 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 blood of Christ shed for you. blood of Christ shed for you. The 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 blood of Christ shed for you. blood of Christ shed for you. The body and blood of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ strengthen and preserve you body and soul in the true faith unto life everlasting. Depart in peace. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good, and his mercy endures forever. Blessed Savior Jesus Christ, you have given yourself to us in this holy sacrament. Keep us in your faith and favor that we may live in you even as you live in us. May your body and blood preserve us in the true faith 
to life everlasting. Hear us for your name's sake, for you live and reign with the Father and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen. Let us bless the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen.